Okay, so last week we traced, uh, however briefly, the development of biblical interpretation from the patristic times, shortly after the apostles, um, to our time in all its diversity. Tyler, Naz, let me get you these. Right, so we did the historical survey uh, last week. And so our aim now, having seen that there is a difference in the way that the ancients read the Bible, in the way that we read the Bible, and how that difference came to be, it's now time to make an assessment of the pre-modern and the modern interpretive methods. And We'll begin, obviously, in this class with the historical critical method. It's a word I've been throwing out a lot. We're going to talk about what it means today, and we're going to kind of take a a critical look at the historical critical method. And what we want to do is just consider, on the one hand, its strengths, um, which are real strengths, and its weaknesses on the other hand. So, Let's just ask this question first, the historical critical method, what is it, what is it all about? Again, because I understand that up to this point, I haven't really defined the historical critical, or it's also sometimes called the historical grammatical method. So I haven't really put a definition to it. And it comes to us in various shapes and sizes, um, but it can neatly be summed up as the search for authorial intent, okay? Historical critical method synonymous with equals the search for authorial intent. So it's tools and uh, techniques, and there are many, are ordered toward that end, um, determining what the author meant and what the author intended for his original audience. So any questions there about what historical, the historical critical method is? The search for an authorial intent? Any questions there? Fairly straightforward? Okay. Again, for all that, that's why it's called the historical critical method. It seeks to understand the text's meaning in its original context, right? That's the goal. The text's meaning in its original context. And it does that by asking questions like, on the screen, what did the words convey in the grammar of the original readers? What was being conveyed by those words to the original readers? How did the cultural setting influence and affect what was written? What is the meaning of the words in their context? In what literary form is the material written? And how does it affect what is said? How does the principles of logic and normal communication affect the meaning? Now, those are fairly standard interpretive questions that you're likely to encounter in any book. And I pulled those from a fairly conservative uh, book on Bible interpretation um, by Roy B. Zuck. And so, again, it's fairly simple questions. What, what does the grammar mean? What's being communicated by the words? How would have the original audience understood this? How does their own culture play into it? Those kind of questions, right? And what those questions call to mind is a quote that I mentioned uh, last week 
from Kevin Van Hooser. He says, the ideal exegete, or in other words, the ideal interpreter is the historian. Again, notice those questions. Except for a few, they're all oriented toward history. How would they have understood it? How would the words have been understood within that history, right? So the ideal interpreter, according to the historical critical method, is a historian. The aim then, bottom line, is historical reconstruction. In order to understand what the text means for us, we must know, we must first discern what it meant for them and its time, right? Any questions on that? How, how many of you that was just like what you've always been taught, that's very basic, so on and so forth? Yeah? Any, any comments on that, Mike? Exactly. So, not only what we've been taught, but all those sound like good things. Anybody else? Tom? I'm just curious how the Holy Spirit works with all of Right. Yes. Right. And that's the heart of the question. And so when we come to this area of critique, we'll find that the historical critical method, its greatest strength, history, is also its greatest weakness. But to kind of swing the pendulum to the other side, what you had said, Mike, I don't think any of us reading that list would disagree with that and say, no, those are bad things. We shouldn't do that. I think that's all fairly standard, right? Um, if you guys have ever taken, uh, they, they usually teach, um, what is it, observation? No. Yeah, observation, interpretation, application. And part of that observation is asking those very basic questions. What did it mean in the culture? So on and so forth. So, so let's carry on a little bit. Mark Brettler, um, who, who writes a lot about the historical critical method, he sums up the entire method pretty well in this definition. He asks, what is the historical critical method? Historical refers to the view that the main context for interpretation is the place and time in which the text was composed. So Tom just said, I think scripture was written for all time. And then here Brettler says, the main context for interpretation is when it was written in that time. Right? That's where, that's where he wants to start. And I think probably that's where he wants to confine things. I'm not sure he wants to talk so much more about ages to come. And then he says, critical simply means reading the text independently of religious norms or interpretive traditions as opposed to accepting them uncritically. So we just covered the historical part of the historical critical method, and that leaves the critical part, which Brettler defines again on the screen, reading the text independently of religious norms and interpretive traditions. So in other words, the method and the one who uh, is employing it seeks complete objectivity. That's the goal, right? Objectivity, to show no partiality or preference for uh, any previous dogma or tradition, right? And we're Protestants, so to a certain extent, we want to affirm that. 
And we want to give the text the highest place and say, when we're reading it, we want the text to stand above our uh, previous traditions and so on and so forth and judge our tradition and judge our you know, dogma and theology rather than the other way around. So there's a certain sense in which we're, we're agreeing with what Brettler's saying here. We do want to seek an objectivity. You know, if Isaiah disagrees with Augustine, we want to side with Isaiah, right? That's a good thing. Um, but that's, again, not entirely what Brettler, Brettler's after here. I think it's more in the spirit of what we encountered last week um, from Benjamin Jowett. I quoted this. The true use of interpretation is to get rid of interpretation and to leave us alone in the company with the author, in company with the author, rather. The history of Christendom is nothing to him. All afterthoughts of theology are nothing to him, right? So we'd want to say we want to keep those things in conversation but always give Scripture the first place. Um, The historical critical method more often wants to say, Let's throw those out all together, and let's just, let's just work with the text here. So uh, you can kind of see both sides, historical and critical. And, of course, there are various versions of what we're calling the historical critical method. So if you're a more conservative scholar, rather than historical critical, you'll say historical grammatical. That, that's like the other way... It's not so critical, it's more grammatical, right? And then there's other things like the redemptive historical and on and on it goes, right? But the point is, I just want to bring those up to say we're not going to treat them because they're all variations of this original historical critical method. So if we treat that, we kind of necessarily touch these other ones as well. Um, So just real quick to sum things up. The method is historical in that it seeks the original author's intent, and it's critical in that it seeks it apart from later dogmatic traditions and customs. Does that make sense? Mike, you're you're disagreeing. Yeah, okay, who can know it? What does anyone think? Okay, what's the assessment there of uh, Greg? Yeah, First Peter one. Right. If so, if they didn't understand what they were writing, how were we supposed to uncover their intent? Right, Tom. Who's the author? Right. Who's the Who's the ultimate author of Scripture? But again, right. Let me kind of jump on the other side and just and just. Uh, play devil's advocate here. I think maybe we all think that we all kind of will say that, but again, the method that we approach it with is we want to say, well, what did Isaiah mean? What did uh, uh, the writer of First and Second Samuel mean? That's functionally, I think, the way we t- typically approach the text. Now, I'll just say, before this class, before kind of preparing this, that was my kind of general approach. Um, I acknowledge the author authorship of the Holy Spirit, but here's the difference. 
and we'll get to this um, toward the end of the class, I made the authorship of the Holy Spirit synonymous with the authorship of the human. So really, whatever the Holy Spirit meant is exactly what the human meant, the human author, and there's no difference. So we'll come to that in a little bit. Um, I don't want to derail us too much. But for now, I just want to make sure we're all in agreement, historical, critical, that makes sense, right? Liz. So what you just said um, is that you made it synonymous, the history part, you likened the author from the Bible because you were wondering what Isaiah really means. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Essentially, so that what the Holy Spirit meant and what Isaiah meant for his original audience, in my mind, those are the those those were the same things. Right. And, and that's kind of where I want to move a little bit is from ma- mainly the context of history to the context of interpreting in the spirit in, in a sense. Um, yeah, and so I think, Liz, that'll get a little bit clarified once we get to when we start talking about the weaknesses. But here we find ourselves now at the strengths. And, and I really do want to emphasize the strength of the historical critical method. And... I said there, the strength. It really is one particular strength, and it's the historical emphasis of the method. So on this front, German theologian Joseph Ratzinger, he explains the historical critical method um, and its abiding significance. He says, the historical critical method, specifically because of the intrinsic nature of theology and faith, is and remains an indispensable dimension of exegetical work. So essentially he says something like, again, let's put this in more concrete terms, something like what we saw Calvin do. He says it's essential to the interpretive task. He says here's the reason why. For it is of the very essence of biblical faith to be about real historical events. It does not tell stories symbolizing super-historical truths, but is based on history, history that took place on earth. So Ratzinger starts with the basic evangelical fact that Christianity stands or falls with history. Our faith is not essentially a philosophical system, right? It's not essentially a collection of ideas that we adhere to. It's essentially about actual events in space and time, namely the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? If you get rid of that historical foundation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you get rid of the faith entirely. As, as the apostle says, right, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, right? There's not even any content to it anymore. You should throw it all away. It's worthless. So the point is, we can't set aside history and maintain a true biblical faith. 
Christianity as such disappears and it's recast as some other religion. So severed from God's deeds, his mighty deeds in history, we drift off maybe into something like Gnosticism or mythology, right, of the ancient, uh, of the ancient variety where you have stories about Zeus and all the other gods that are designed to communicate eternal truths, right? Um, the scripture doesn't function in that same way. It claims to be history, and specifically the life of Jesus Christ, right? We can't just, yeah, it's a, it's a fabricated story, right? It is rooted in history. So therefore, because the very essence of biblical faith is about real historical events, the historical critical method, which seeks to recover that history, is indispensable, right? Does that make sense, right? Because history is so foundational, the historical critical method, which seeks to uncover and make concrete that history, is so important. Um, Again, we're confronted in the scriptures with actual history, real lives, real events, real people, and real places. And we cannot do justice to the scriptures without attending to that history, right? It's an important part that we just can't set aside. So the questions that the historical critical method asks the resources that it brings to the table, the sort of mindset that it cultivates in the interpreter are essential to that task. So thus, its distinctive contributions, attention to the literary forms, the linguistic patterns, the historical context, the cultural and traditional elements, among many other things, those bring us closer to the human author, right? They bring us closer to the events that were described and the particular circumstances, and moreover, the intention of the author, and therefore what? They bring us closer to the truth. That part of history is necessary. So can someone maybe give me an example of where history proves to be very helpful in biblical interpretation? Maybe if you missed a detail about the history here and there, you would miss something of what is being said in the text? Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, so who's ever jumped into a book of the Bible without kind of doing the cursory background research and just been totally confused, right? That's essentially what Aaron's talking about, right? Let's say it's First and Second Timothy. Um, and you want to read what's going on there, it sure helps a lot, right, to know what are the circumstances in which Paul's writing to Timothy? What's it like for Timothy in Ephesus? Why is Paul saying these certain things? That kind of historical work that you'd find maybe at the preface of a study Bible or something that you could find maybe like on Blue Letter Bible um, online, like that kind of thing is incredibly helpful to figure out what's going on. And even more like cultural details, right? Let's take Ephesians 1, right, which talks a lot about adoption. Um, If you understand the Roman system of adoption, it kind of puts those things in a new light, right? It kind of sheds a new history or a new meaning, rather, on the text. Joey and I were um, uh, hanging out with some friends this week, and um, 
one of them was mentioning how he was reading, uh, and he said specifically, a book that would help you to see how the Israelites, how the Hebrews, how they would have understood the Old Testament. And he says it was mind-blowing, how they would have read it. So it's a lot of history, and it helps you think, this is the way a Hebrew would have saw it, and it kind of uh, shows a different light for us. So we're all in agreement there, right? That part of it is pretty helpful, big time. So it's incontestable that the historical critical method with, and this is basically what I just said, um, with its increased attention on what the author meant, um, has shed a new illuminating light on Scripture that's been largely absent from the past, right? And in many circumstances, it's corrected errors of the past. So whatever might be said of the pre-modern method, with all its varieties of spiritual interpretation, it was abused and it did fall into excess. And the reformers found in the historical critical method, um, it's a different version, right? It's the beginning of it, not the Enlightenment version, but roughly the same thing. They found an ally in it to rein in and bring control to those fanciful spiritual readings that undermine the scripture's historical sense. So, I think Keith Staglin, he sums up the contribution here really well. He says, The progress made in the modern era to understand the scriptures in its ancient context is, essentially, is essential for responsible exegesis. The tools of historical, philological, and archaeological research are means to the end of discerning authorial intent. Historical research has opened up the cultural and linguistic world of the ancient Near East in ways hardly imaginable before the modern era. Era, rather, knowledge of Koine Greek and advances in textual criticism have increased understanding of the New Testament. As a result, the contextual world of the Bible has been illuminated, and this knowledge must not be ignored. And that's exactly right. So when I prepare a message, before I reach for an ancient commentator, say the sermons of Augustine or Origen, I reach for a modern commentary. Because the contemporary scholarship serves where ancient scholarship doesn't. And what it does is through that historical reconstruction, it helps me to see, okay, like I'm studying Zacchaeus, right? Or the passage of, uh, of Zacchaeus or where, where Jesus comes to him. And there's a bunch of little details in there that you go to the commentaries and you open up and you think, oh, okay, I would have never known that unless it was for the historical research, that kind of thing that sheds a new light on what I'm looking at. Um, And so if nothing else, the information provided by all this historical critical research, it helps us understand what's going on. Again, like Aaron mentioned, like we all acknowledged, take a study Bible. Before you get into such and such a book, there's a little breakdown. It was written here, it was written in this place, these are the circumstances, and you've got better footing going into it. So, that information is invaluable to interpretation. So any questions on that? I want to talk a few examples here, and then we'll move on. Fairly straightforward. Okay. So, again, what comes to mind, um, any of you familiar with N.T. Wright, scholar? N.T. Wright, yeah. What about Tim Mackey? Joe, I know you know Tim Mackey, the Bible Project. Very popular right now. Historical critical, right? Very much in the history, uh, uh, ancient uh, Near East, 
uh, a guy like Larry Hurtado, who's wrote, written some really good books, Destroyer of the Gods, um, one on the early church and all these different things. Um, Scott McKnight and Richard Bauckham, maybe someone more familiar like D.A. Carson or Daryl Bach. These are all people who um, use the historical critical method to great um, use for the church. Um, and it's truly a gift. And again, if you've read that, their work, you know how illuminating it is. So just allow me to use an example from my own life. Um, N.T. Wright, uh, as I was kind of searching for a theological identity and didn't kind of know exactly where I fit into this big thing that we call Christianity, I found N.T. Wright. And I benefited immensely from his work. He's got three fat books, The New Testament and the People of God, Jesus and the Victory of God, and The Resurrection of the Son of God. And those together are probably the chief example of what the historical critical method offers to the church. So to make a long story short, what N.T. Wright does is he takes the best of what's called Second Temple Scholarship. That's everything we know about Judaism from 550 B.C., to 70 AD, the time of the second temple, and he essentially reconstructs painstakingly the historical situation of Jesus' time. And then he brings that information to the Gospels. And I'll tell you, the first time I've read N.T. Wright, I, I, I had no idea that this hidden depth behind the Gospels. And essentially, he showed me that Jesus, he put it in a political context, he was almost a political agitator, the way uh, he puts it. He was crucifiable, essentially, right? There was reasons to put him to the cross. And it's, it's fascinating. It's so good. So putting uh, the life of Jesus in its historical, political, and spiritual context, again, provided incredible insights to understand the Scriptures better. And I want to underscore that with another thing. The historical critical method in its emphasis on history, it makes the Bible strange again. Again, apart from its historical roots, the Bible is easily misread and misinterpreted through modern eyes, right? So if we don't pay attention to history, we're going to impose our own Western thinking, our own sort of post-enlightenment thinking, our own... uh, American thinking, whatever, wherever context we come from, will impose that on the Bible, whereas history kind of checks us and tells us to stop, and it says, actually, this is part of the context you need to pay attention to, right? And so it makes it strange again. You realize how different the Bible times were, how different that culture was from ours. And so Again, it puts a good check on us. Again, um, L.P. Hartley, um, he, he said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And that's the point, right, uh, of, of kind of, it teaches us to slow our roll a little bit. And again, all in all, the point is the historical critical method with its concern for authorial intention, coupled with the tools that it brings to uncover it, has become an invaluable resource to the interpretive process. And again, it was one that was not valued in the past. So that's what we have to say for the strengths. That, and that's a huge strength. I don't want to act like, uh, well, it's not. It's a, it's a, 
amazing uh, benefit to the church. So any questions on there? Any clarity? Anything I need to pick up and clarify there? Are we all in agreement? Okay, let me ask a question just along those lines. Is this what you encounter in your own Bible reading or maybe in commentaries? Is this something that feels familiar to you? Or what am I just is what I'm describing feel foreign to your experience? Tom. Sure. Absolutely. Sure, yeah. So checking where they're coming from, what they're. I've done that before, brought commentaries, and just been like, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, and actually been severely challenged in some cases when I first was learning to read and teach the Bible. Um, any positive influences of this in your life? Mike. Let's see, there's a, <clears throat> one story where Jesus says, I have to go away, and he says, wait for me. Yes. And I can just go right past, you know, unless you understand that that's part of a, uh, part of a Jewish uh, uh, matrimonial ceremony. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what about something like the Pharisees? Like understanding what were their aims, what were their goals, right? We've learned a lot about that through Second Temple scholarship. What were the Pharisees up to? And it puts things in a different light, right? You kind of see, okay, here's where they're coming from, motives, that kind of thing. That helps. Um, okay. Anybody else on that one? Joe. Yes. But I found this to be like, well, this is the stuff that I've been looking for. Yes. Like, what did they mean? I don't know where they have read this. And so I find a great feeling of comfort when it's connected to Absolutely. So give us an example of like one of those teachers. I mean, that's a, if. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, so you mentioned R.C. Sproul. He's a great example of historical critical method. He would probably say historical grammatical method. But, I mean, it's very historical, it's very contextual, it's very doctrinal, and it feels coming from your context, one I'm familiar with, it feels very safe. And I had that same movement, right? When I first discovered MacArthur, it was like a new drug, right? It was like, this is, he's not playing around. Like, here's the history, here's what it means. And, you know, it was, yeah, it's the historical, grammatical element that provided that sort of security amid all of the different chaos of interpretations. So I, I can totally relate to that. Bob, did you have something?
Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let, let me mention one that for me was, um, so if you guys had, if you came to the last class on the storyline of the Bible, the first one on Genesis was based very much on historical critical research um, about how the Garden of Eden would have essentially, for the Hebrews, would have been understood as a, a temple, and how that maps on to the tabernacle and then the actual temple later on in First Kings and so on and so forth. Um, that, that would have just never appeared to me to make those connections apart from that sort of historical critical research, and now that's indispensable to the way I think about the Bible and what it means to be the church and so on and so forth, um, that kind of thing. So I, I do, I, do I, I don't want to present the historical critical method as the boogeyman, right? Um, it has so many good things that it brings to the table, but it does have some weaknesses, and those are the things that I want to expose. So any uh, questions there or any comments before we move on? Okay, so let's talk more about weaknesses, and maybe this will clarify some things. Um, And it turns out, again, that the main strength of the historical critical method, history, is also its main weakness. Again, who we quoted earlier, Joseph Ratzinger, he says, fairly lengthy quote, For someone who considers himself directly addressed by the Bible today, the method's first limitation is is that by its very nature, it has to leave the biblical word in the past. It is a historical method. And that means that it investigates the then-current context of events in which the text originated. It attempts to identify and to understand the past as it was in itself with the greatest possible precision in order to then find out what the author could have said and intended to say in the context of the mentality of the events of the time. To the extent that it remains true to itself, the historical critical method not only has to investigate the biblical word as a thing of the past, but also has to let it remain in the past. It can glimpse points of contact with the present and try to apply the biblical word to the present. The one thing it cannot do is make it into something present today that would be overstepping its bounds, its very precision in interpreting The reality of the past is both its strength and its limit. So there's a lot there, and we'll unpack it. But Ratzinger is not alone in his diagnosis. Since its inception, the same critique has been brought against the historical critical method. And that last statement he makes there is the most pointed. It's very precision in interpreting the reality of the past, right? The strength in which it burrows into the historical context and undermine, or, uh, uh, unearths everything there and makes it plain to us is also its weakness. It's its strength and limit. So, so what does Ratzinger mean by that? Again, he says, to the extent that it remains true to itself, the historical method not only has to investigate that biblical word as a thing of the past, but also has to let it remain in the past. So its limitation, in other words, 
is that it confines the biblical word to history. It, it treats the scripture at its bare bottom sort of bottom line is it treats it as a thing confined to history. So by definition, the word cannot be a word present for today. Again, thus interpreting, as we've mentioned, is akin to doing history or archaeology. The interpreter excavates the past and unearths a relic, so to speak, and then examines its present meaning for us today. Right? You, you see the metaphor there and, and how history is the determining influence. And the Bible is uh, subscribed or circum-whatever by history. So let me give you an example. I mentioned N.T. Wright earlier. And again, I've benefited so much from his work. But in this, his critique finds its mark. Um, the real Jesus, according to N.T. Wright's uh, work, can only be known by reconstructing the past. Um, by understanding Jesus' own discrete historical situation and context. Again, in other words, Jesus is trapped or locked in the past. And knowing him is essentially tied up with doing good history, right? You have to put Jesus in his context. You kind of have to set the ground before you can enter into that territory. So he, he took his three big books and he distilled them into one popular level, level book called Simply Jesus. I have it. I can bring it for you next week if you'd like. Um, but that book, for the most part, is historical reconstruction, right? It's all about kind of, he, he's got the three, the three storms, and he talks about the Roman world. He talks about the Jewish world. And then I think, I can't remember the third one is, but it's all history, right? Putting Jesus in his context. And so in the, in the introduction, he says the following. Jesus' world is a strange and foreign place, which we've already acknowledged. People in his day and in his country thought differently. They looked at the world differently. We have to get inside that world if the sense Jesus made to them is going to make sense. I've got so many spelling errors there. Uh, is going to make sense to us now. And as we do, we need to try to catch a glimpse of what he meant when he spoke of God. You, you guys see what he's doing there? Right, so we got to put Jesus in his context. We got to understand how he would have been understood in his context, and then we can know what he means for us today. And that's fairly standard for the historical critical method. So, again, Laurel. Absolutely. <laughs> that's a great point. He wasn't understood in his context, yeah. <laughs> they crucified him. Yeah. What this basically saying is that unless you are a theologian and digging in, you're not going to understand scripture. So a simple guy like me is just on the out. Yes. So that's was ultimately where I was going to get at why this is why this is um, important, right? Why we don't confine the text to history like this, because then it makes you, the ordinary interpreter who didn't go to seminary, who doesn't read all the high scholarship, and it makes the church in particular um, at the mercy of 
scholarship, right? You need all these additional things to come and to then understand the text, right? You need all of this to then reconstruct it. And so it puts us in a very uh, strange place. Again, so to, to kind of build on that, what Rotzinger says, it can glimpse, glimpse points of contact with the present and try to apply the biblical word to the present. The one thing it cannot do isn't make it something present today. That would be overstepping its bounds. So it's restricted to history. Now, I think we all agree on that. I think maybe where, they're, where I'm wanting to point more, and, and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong on this, we all say that in theory, but I, my guess is that we don't all do that in practice, right? That, that we would all affirm that. And I only say that because that was my experience, right? I would have affirmed all of this, but I didn't use it in the way I interpret Scripture. So let me give you an example from John Stott. Anybody remember John Stott? A great preacher, a great man, amazing. Um, from his book on preaching. Um, so he puts forth the metaphor um, of preaching as bridge building, right? So preaching is building a bridge from one side to the other. Listen to what he says. A bridge is a means of communication between two places which would otherwise be cut off from one another by a river or a ravine. So you can get the analogy, biblical world, our world. It makes possible a flow of traffic which without it would be impossible. What then does the gorge or chasm represent? And what is the bridge which spans it? The chasm is the deep rift, the deep rift rather, between the biblical world and the modern world. Our task is to enable God's revealed truth to flow out of the scriptures into the lives of men, men and women today. So, Scott's, Stott's rather, his basic metaphor, preaching as bridge building, presumes, I think wrongly, that the scripture is a thing trapped in the past, cut off from contemporary readers by this giant gorge, right? You see that analogy assumes that without the bridge building, the work of the preacher, we can't get from one end to the other. At least maybe not adequately. We're going to miss a big chunk. And the scripture has to be rescued from the past, i.e. irrelevancy, by the creative work of the preacher who brings it into the present through his bridge-building work. So I could say, oh, see, look, David, look at his context. Look at what's going on in his life. That's kind of like this, right? Or it's kind of you're, I'm taking the word, and I'm walking it through history, and I'm getting it to our moment today. Now, I don't want to present a caricature of Stott, um, again, whom I admire, because later on in his book, he says the biblical text is amazingly contemporary. But my point is, is that he gets there despite his metaphor. So, because the historical critical method um, limits the scriptural word to the past, every preaching handbook inevitably has a chapter on bridging the cultural gap. Right? Any familiarity with that? Or something along those lines. So a book that I already mentioned, uh, Basic Biblical Interpretation by Roy B. Zuck, he has three such chapters, bridging the cultural gap, bridging the grammatical gap, bridging, bridging the literary gap. And again, what I think all this does is presume wrongly that the Bible was written for them and not for us, right? It's, it's a word then, but, but not a word for now. 
But again, I need to clarify a little bit. There is some element of bridge building that's always necessary. So we spoke about R.C. Sproul just a second ago. Here's what he says. Unless we maintain that the Bible fell down from heaven on a parachute inscribed by a celestial pen in a particularly heaven a particular heavenly language suited as a vehicle for a divine revelation, or that the Bible was dictated directly and immediately by God without reference to any local customs, style, or perspective, we are going to have to face the cultural gap. That is, the Bible reflects the culture of its own day. So does anyone see the difference between what I'm saying and what R.C. Sproul is saying? Yeah? Let's, let, let's, let's go on, right? When I argue that the historical critical method limits the scripture to history, again, this is not what I'm talking about. Who's going to argue against something so self-evident? Um, clearly, the scripture came to be in a culture and time different from ours, and we must attend to that. We have to pay attention to it. Again, not imposing our modern notions upon the text. The scriptures are historical, No one wants to argue against that. Instead, what we're arguing against, what we're opposing, is the modern notion that the scriptures are merely historical or limited to history. So you see the difference there? One is, okay, we need to do our justice to attend to that. The other one is to say that's that's the only part of interpretation. And here's the section where I'd get to what Tom had mentioned earlier, but When you make history the main context of Bible interpretation, it puts everyone at the mercy of such and such a scholar. Um, The true meaning of the passage is not discernible without copious amounts of historical critical scholarship that situates the text in its proper context, right? So in other words, abiding strictly by the historical critical method One cannot simply read the scriptures for themselves. They first need the history, the culture, the language, and etc., right? You have to get there first. Does that make sense? Mike. Would you say that the depth of the gap has been greatly exaggerated? I think so. I would just say also that, okay, there is a gap, but even that whole metaphor of bridge building that we're just using the wrong metaphor to begin with, right? So that's, again, presuming history is the bottom line there. But yes, I would agree that we have overdone it. (laughs) Not the ones I've been reading, hopefully. (laughs) But yeah, okay. Um, Any pushback on that, right? Anything that would would, would say otherwise? Because there is another side that has good points. Joy. Yeah. Right. As almost a direct word from God. Sure. Sure. Well, let me open this up rather than just saying what I think. Well, anybody. Um, Ty, let me ask you this question. You mentioned 
in the Psalms when I read my enemy, um, you know that the enemy David is talking about is not your enemy. And Aaron and I have had this conversation about the Psalms. She'll mention, I don't have enemies like David who are persecuting me and ready to tear me down. You know what I mean? It's hardly any of us have that situation. So Ty, what, what's your approach in that situation? Yes. With your history. Okay. Okay. So we're going to come into the your history part, and that'll kind of get in, it'll dovetail into Joe's question about where does history stop. I'll mention just one thing. Um, actually, before I do, Mike, did you have something? Yes. Okay, yeah. So to that extent, history is not as important um, for the direct. So, so yeah, that pertains to a little bit of, of, of Joey's question about what are the limits of history? Where does it stop? And I think just to say a quick word on that, it's the foundation. It'll clarify. It'll be clarified as we start talking about spiritual interpretation. I think once you see that, then you'll see, okay, this is the role that history plays. And here's how it functions within interpretation and kind of how it sets the uh, playing field and kind of the boundaries. So to answer your question about sort of the security element of it, that I think is the primary focus. Um, But you'll see how those two interact in our next lecture. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense because if you read who the 
I, well, I like what you said. The rather than making it so much about kind of a, mapping my life onto David's, it's more so about kind of getting in David's perspective and seeing what he's looking to, rather than the down here. It's kind of readjusting to his perspective, and I think that's a good way to put it. Um, where maybe history is not so contingent at that point, Laurel. Yes. 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 That's a great point. That's a really good point. That it talks about shrinking that gap, right, and and making it not so tied to history because, yeah, um, the situation described in the New Testament of the state of man is not any different from what you find in the Old Testament. The letters of Paul's of Paul to um, what you find in First and Second Kings or Numbers or whatever. I think that's a, a really good point to underscore, Tyler. Regardless of the circumstances of the text, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an inner witness of the spirit, right? Where where you feel this word is not confined. Yes, yes. That's a great point, Tom. Amen. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So, um, let's move quickly now through this second part, um, and uh, and then we'll get to an objection and kind of where I want to maybe disrupt things a little bit before we settle into our lecture for next week. Um, so, all that leads us to the second similar critique, which many of you have already talked about. So, on the one hand, the historical critical method limits the scripture to the past. On the other. It puts too much confidence in our ability to know the past. So when we're doing this, we have to keep in mind um, the limits of all efforts to know what actually happened or how much the certain cultural details would have affected the meaning of the passage. Again, as another scholar writes, we can never go beyond the domain of hypothesis because we cannot bring the present into the past. So in other words, um, the reconstruction of the historical situation and the psychoanalyzing of the author are just never certain. 
And more often than not, they're conjecture. You know, I, I just don't know, unless it's like one of the Psalms, but I don't know what the author was thinking. I can never get inside their mind to say, this is why they wrote such and such a word. This was their intention here. It, we just don't know that. And so at the end of the day, we can only make educated guesses. And I think guesses that cannot bear the weight of meaning. And I think, and, and here's where I want to make this point some more and, and kind of get to those enlightenment scientific underpinnings that we sometimes bring to the text. The historical critical method assumes too much objectivity on our part, right? That, that we can de- clear ourselves of all of our personal baggage and just independently, objectively read the text. So Hans Borsema, he says this, Such scholarship too often takes on the mantle of naturalistic scientific methodology. As such, and as such, insufficiently appreciates the results of historical exegesis are not just partial and approximate, but also perspectival. The questions asked and the mode of investigation depends upon the historian's standpoint, and they shape the exegetical results. So in other words... The historical critical method assumes an objectivity akin to the natural sciences that it simply does not possess. Again, Borsema says one's attempt to reconstruct the past is partial and approximate. And, as we noted, it's also perspectival. In other words, as it pertains to interpretation, there's just no such thing as pure objectivity. The interpreter... Each one of us comes with our own perspective, our own historical context, our own personal concerns and needs, um, and all that other stuff that we bring to the text, and that cannot nor should be eradicated. Right? We shouldn't try to come to the text as a blank slate because interpreting is always personal. It's always at the heart of our own lives. It's not like parsing out the data or crunching numbers. That's probably the wrong way to look at it. So maybe put this another way, or just to continue to say the same thing, meaning in the scriptures cannot be uncovered apart from our inmost person. Again, we're not scientists performing experiments and running tests, nor are we mathematicians solving problems and uh, running algorithms. Again, which those things should be done um, independent of any personal influences, right? You don't want your own bias changing the facts of math or science or whatever. You want to come objectively. But I think, again, as it pertains to reading, meaning of, in the text arises at the intersection of the passage and our own lives. That's where meaning is birthed. Um, so it's inherently personal in a way that the natural sciences can never be. Now, of course, we want to not read into the text, but you can't just pretend to, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing a science here. Again, let me add another thing from Borsma, and then I'll open some up for some questions and comments. He says, by acknowledging our limited human horizon and interpretation, essentially that we come from a perspective, we recognize that historical investigation draws on the imagination as much as on analytical skill. 
Therefore, even when we come to the scripture with questions of history and authorial intent prominently in mind, we should not expect a God's eye view. Attempts to arrive at such a perspective are a practical denial of human finitude and subjectivity. So, well, let me open it up. I want to hear what you guys have to say about this more personal rather than maybe a scientific or methodological sort of process. Mike? Okay, so, so I get what you're saying. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's what, where Borsum is coming from. So I think what he's saying, and and so maybe I just misunderstood you, Mike. I think what he's saying is that um, even these attempts, right, of the historical critical method to say this is what the author meant, this is the history, this is just fact. It's purely objective. He's saying. That's the wrong way. to. We're already bringing our own perspective. We're already bringing our own interests. And we can't deny that. That's part of interpretation. Exactly. I think think to a certain extent, right? I, my personal experience, I would say it's probably a little different that each person with their own perspective sees things and unearth things in the text um, that other people can't see because of their perspective. So let's say someone's been through a particular trauma in their life, and I'm reading, you know, a particular story in First Samuel. I skip right over it, and because of their experience, it jumps right off the page to them, and there's that kind of meaning. But I would generally agree with what you're saying, though, Mike. Yeah, in those cases, clearly they exist. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I don't think they really do. What does anybody else have to add to that? Do you guys agree with uh, Ty? I think the, the critical historical method is a good thing as far as you have to read the Bible knowing that each book is different, each writing style is different, each poetry, there's history. Mm-hmm. I feel like you have to do it specific to each book. So it'd be easier to do the critical historical method on one of the New Testament letters. Sure. You could get the historical context, but reading Genesis with this type of mindset, you're, you're lost. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to interpret something. You're gonna, it's, it's impossible not to. You have to resort to some sort of spiritual level. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Okay, yeah. Tom. My question is not so much addressing this, but throughout the whole, the whole discourse, you know, who writes history? What history are you studying? Because history is really written by the winners. Yeah, that's a great point, right? So whose history are you? You know, we're rewriting history, the young generation is rewriting America's history right now. Sure. Whose history do you go by? 
And both think they're right. Yeah, so you're right. That's a great point. History itself is subjective. And again, that's the point is like we can't just pretend we are dealing with pure objectivity. Go ahead, Bob. the umim and thumim and all the different... So to that, I just want to say amen, right? Um, that's absolutely right. The other thing that he could have left ambiguous, I think that's probably a good perspective to approach history with. Is Again, that's sim- the point you made there is very similar to the one we made at the beginning. The Bible is historical, and we can't deny that element. Now, we need to use the history that we bring to the text with a critical eye and not just swallow it hook, line, and sinker, nevertheless, it's still necessary, right? The God's eye view that he talks about there, yeah. Well, isn't that, and that's what the enlightenment is, right? It's we're going to control nature and we're going to make it bend to our will. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, my, the homework I put out this week, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if I can find something to put a, a different thing for you to read, because I want you to see uh, someone like Michael Heiser or something like that. Dad, you're familiar with his work. It's very historically rooted, and it, it'll maybe just offer a different perspective. So let's get, let's get um, to Liz first, we'll then come to Laurel, and then we need to, we need to get the ball rolling here. Go ahead, Liz. Than fame in 
Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with um, the method of understanding what the word says to me as opposed to praying through the word. That's, yes. That's really where so let me offer an example then where history might be helpful. Um, let me position myself as the woke whatever, right? And we'll take Tom as the old establishment. We're reading the same Bible, right? Um, I'm coming to to you know my interpretations, and 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 I accuse Tom and say you're reading that according to your white cisgender identity. You're reading into the text from your perspective. Um, you're making Jesus out to be who you want him to be. That that and that's a this is a very real debate within the evangelical community right now. Um, can we not use history at that point? And to say, hey, let, let's put my perspective aside and your perspective aside. Let's try and maybe get uncover how history might be helpful at this point. And I think it would. To get a good dose of, here's how this was understood in its time. Here's how, you, you, at that point, that would be my first resort, to kind of solve some of those problems, or to at least maybe establish a playing field where we can have a discussion. Because it's all perspectival at that point, And I can accuse Tom till the end of time, right? And he could say, likewise, you're doing the same thing. But I think history can kind of give us a little bit of working room there where we might be able to have a discussion. So so maybe that's a helpful area. Well, I'm not going to say you, ha- you have to understand him through history, but I'm going to say when there's those kind of debates, you can appeal to history to help to kind of settle that. Or not settle it, but help to build a playing field, Right where you can have that discussion. Laurel, what would you have? Yes. I think I think that's absolutely right. Yes. And that's kind of the goal of the class, right? Is to is to that instinct that you have there to provide a theological framework for it and then kind of to put the Bible back in your hands. And that theological framework is what we want to get to next week. We'll spend a good, well, the whole class doing just that. So let me quickly move through this next one. We've talked about it already, so I'm going to move pretty quick. And it's the, 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 the emphasis of the historical critical method on recovering what did the author originally mean. Um, now, we've shown that that's impossible to some extent, right? We just can't get inside the mind of the author. 
Um, and the problem with that is that there is quite obviously another author beside the human one, and that's the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a lot of believing scholars who use the historical critical method, right? They're not unbelievers. However, what they do is they conflate the two. Remember what I said at the beginning of the class. So essentially, they make the human authorial intent, what David wrote meant, what Isaiah meant, what Jeremiah meant, whatever. They make that synonymous with what the Holy Spirit meant and vice versa. So they're not two different things. So in other words, what that means to say is there, there, there can't be any higher meaning to the passage beyond what David meant, beyond what Isaiah meant. That's it, because that's what the Holy Spirit meant as well. So any sort of the spiritual reading where we're saying, okay, David, this was his perspective, but the Holy Spirit intended this fuller meaning, they would say that's out of bounds. Now, let me just put before you a passage we've Um, already looked at. It's where Jesus comes out of uh, Egypt. Um, So it says, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of the Lord or spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. So we're already familiar, right, that Hosea's original words understood according to their authorial intent lack any explicit or implicit messianic overtones, right? There's no mention of the Christ. There's no mention of some coming figure. It's referring to Israel alone. So according to the historical critical method, it's impossible for Hosea to mean uh, something about Jesus because he didn't know Jesus. And what's inspired is what Hosea meant, not these deeper meanings. So listen to what one scholar says. Um, He says, One cannot but wonder, therefore, whether Matthew has wrenched Hosea 11-1 rather from its context and applied it gratuitously to Jesus, or to put it in perhaps gentler terms, whether Matthew has engaged in a bit of midrashic exegesis, reading back into the text something that is not really there, but which might be just nevertheless justified on theological grounds. So, Matthew, let's just acknowledge that, he seems to be reading Hosea's words in quite a different manner than those who use the historical critical method. Now, we're not going to yet talk about what Matthew's doing there. Um, We'll come to that. But at the very least, we want to say that what Matthew's doing is not restricted to human authorial intent. We know what Hosea meant. Isaiah, or uh, Matthew knew what Hosea meant, and yet nevertheless he says it applies to Jesus. So there's something going on there where there's a fuller meaning beyond what the author meant, Um, a meaning that was placed there by the Holy Spirit. So, again, we'll come to what Matthew is doing next week, but for now, it's sufficient to recognize that the modern historical critical method is at odds with the Bible's own interpretation of itself, something we've already acknowledged. Um, Being narrowly concerned with... um, the human authorial intent, it sidelines anything that God might want to communicate beyond what the particular author meant. So let me fly through a few quotes. We're not going to go there. Let me read this one from Richard Hayes. He says, Historical criticism 
of the sort commonly practiced in the academic guild for the past two centuries, characteristically judges that the New Testament's Christological readings of Israel's scriptures are simply a big mistake. They twist and misrepresent the original sense of the text. So remember when I said at the very beginning of this class that what Matthew's doing seems really weird to us? What Paul does seems really weird to us? Well, that's why. We're coming to the text with the historical critical framework. It only means what the author meant it to mean, and so it's very strange when we see this surplus of meaning, and we think, whoa, whoa, this is strange. What are they doing? So there's that disjunction that we first talked about. There's a big break between how we approach it and how they approach it. And that's why I said maybe I think sometimes that though we acknowledge this, the way we read Scripture still has a bit of that historical critical tone to it. So any questions there? I want to move on quickly. Laurel, or did you have something? I, yeah, I don't think they did. Well, go ahead and read Hosea 11.1. 1. I mean, that's a pretty clear passage. Um, I, I, it, yeah. Yes. Sure. Yes. Yeah, well, or, yeah, he's saying, well, what Matthew's doing is illegitimate. Definitely. I think that's right. And that's the passage that uh, Greg mentioned and Liz mentioned at the very beginning of this, First uh, Peter 1, where they made inquiries into the very own prophecies that they made, right? They didn't understand the true depth of them. Um, yeah, that's just a passage that just kind of, we're going to skip right over that one and keep moving on. Tom? I think the difference would be, now here I'm doing my own historical critical method. <laughs> As I say, I think what Matthew's doing, um, I think Christ is the primary application, and Israel in that case would be the secondary application. So that would kind of turn that over a bit. And that's why I'm, I, I don't tend to use the language of application, um, simply because I think Israel is a type of Jesus rather than Jesus a type of Israel. He, he's the center, and they're built off of him. So I don't like to, I don't go toward application, but that certainly is a way of explaining the secondary meaning. And someone like John Calvin, that's kind of how he did it, right? There was a, there was a fuller secondary application to the passage. So, okay, let's move on real quick before I get you out of here. Um, we see the difference. Now, there's a rebuttal that modern people make to um, what's going on here. So this is um, an objection. This is Richard Lagenecker. He says, what then can be said to our question? Can we reproduce the exegesis of the New Testament? So he's asking, can I do what the apostles do? 
He says, I suggest we must answer both no and yes. He says, where the exegesis is based on a relatory stance, or it is evidence itself to be merely cultural, or where it shows itself to be circumstance or ad hominem in nature, no. Where, however, it treats the Old Testament in a more literal fashion, following the course of what we speak of today as historical grammatical exegesis, yes. Our commitment as Christians is to the reproduction of the apostolic faith and doctrine, and not necessarily to the specific apostolic practice. Okay, So that might make someone comfortable with what he's saying there, but let me add someone else to the mix. Gordon Fee, very conservative scholar. Here's what he says on, in his book, How to Read the Bible. And he's talking about what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10, right? Where he says, well, you guys have read it. So he says, we are simply not inspired writers of Scripture. What Paul did, we are not authorized to do. The allegorical connections that he was inspired to find between the Old Testament and the New Testament are trustworthy. But nowhere do the Scriptures say to us, go and do likewise. Unless something is identified as a census planner, as a fuller meaning in the New Testament, it cannot be confidently identified as such from the Old Testament by us on our own authority. So let me explain. Loganecker and Fee come from different perspectives, but they wind up in the same place. The interpretive method used by the apostles was good and right for them, but not for us. We shouldn't do that. We should stick to kind of what did the author mean, what was the literal meaning of the passage, and not go far beyond that. Loganecker is obviously more critical. He almost seems to say that maybe even what the apostles are doing was not very sound, but the Holy Spirit protected them from error. Fee is more generous. He says the apostles could do that because they were inspired, right? They had the Holy Spirit, and we don't, so we should, we should, uh, we should hold off. So either way, it's the same statement. It's justifiable for the apostles, but not for us right? We shouldn't do that. Now, let me, um, again, I want to move quickly here. Sorry, guys. Let me put up another scholar in conversation with them. And I think this, this is, well, I don't know if you can answer this or if they can answer this. So directly responding to Loganecker, he says, that is to say, when the apostles do what we do, we can follow them. When they don't, we cannot. Loganecker, though, faces the obvious question, exactly what kind of hermeneutical authority or interpretive authority does the New Testament have? How is the apostles' reading supposed to form our reading if we are constantly pulling up short and refusing to follow their interpretive hints? So Loganecker and Fee try to split the difference, allowing that method for the apostles but denying it for us. But again, I don't think it adds up. The apostles and Jesus are example for everything. Yet curiously, and arguably the most important matter, not, the, not reading the scripture. We, we should read it on our grounds, but not theirs. So again, they end up saying something like this. We should not read the Bible according to the Bible's own example, but instead according to more our, our own more reliable method. Right? We, sh- we shouldn't do that. So it leaves us with kind of some unsatisfactory, unsavory questions. Is it possible to separate doctrine from interpretation? So we see how the apostles used the Old Testament and how they got their doctrine. Can we separate those two? Is it possible to use a different method and come to the same doctrine? That's a, that's a, that's a very important question. 
you have to ask also, on what grounds did the biblical authors believe they could use such spiritual interpretation? Why is Paul doing that? Why is Matthew doing that? On what grounds are they approaching the text if it's not authorized? Or is it just, you know, the Holy Spirit's just letting him go? Or you also have to ask, if the New Testament authors don't teach us how to read the Scripture, who will? All right, who's going to show us this is how you read? This is what it means to pick up the Scripture. And then, of course, this is the most ridiculous one. On what grounds do we judge our historical critical method, right? The literal authorial intent to be superior to what the apostles were doing. So we, we get in a weird spot. And I don't think anyone's really made uh, a convincing argument to those. So let me say one last thing, and then we'll close for the night. I'll sum up and then carry us forward. Um, we've made two criticisms, that the historical critical method, to the extent that it remains true to itself, traps the biblical word in history. It's not present for today. And two, in its zeal to recover what the human author meant, um, already an impossibility, it sidelines the most important author of Scripture, and that's the Holy Spirit. So where do we want to go now? What then? Well, um, we're coming to, I think, now the purpose of the class. And it's to recover this pre-modern method of interpretation. And as you'll see, what I'm going to try to do here is not so much to trade one out for the other, um, nor is it simply to return to the past, because we've already said that's impossible. It's instead to adopt a synthesis of the way we read Scripture now and the way maybe Augustine or Origen read the Scripture. The historical critical method is indispensable. We cannot pretend it didn't happen and return to the 4th and 5th centuries. There's no going back, and we don't want to go back. Instead, we want to recover and build. And by that I mean we want to retain the best practices of the historical critical method while simultaneously recovering the best practices of the pre-modern method. So next week we'll get into exactly what that looks like, and we'll this is where we'll really jump into the scriptures for the first time. So any uh, questions about what we just covered there, and then we'll shut it down. Yeah? I'd be wondering what they do with uh, the book of Enoch and the book of Genesis. I mean, they're mentioned in the Bible. I, mean, I don't believe they're inspired, but I believe they're historical. Yes. And if you read them, it's crazy stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the issue of the Apocrypha, I don't know if Enoch and Jasher are included in the Apocrypha, but similar circumstance. Um, they're like the Roman Catholic uh, tradition would regard them as Scripture. Um, other denominations won't regard them as Scripture, but they'll include them as an appendix at the end of the Bible and kind of like, hey, this is useful information. Um, and I think it's important because a lot of the church fathers, I mean, in formulating the doctrine of the Trinity, they used the wisdom of Solomon, which we don't have in our Bible. And that was a shock to me, reading Augustine and all these other guys and realizing, what is wisdom? What is wisdom chapter 7, and why is that so important to Trinitarian theology and these different things? So um, I think for the purpose of history, it is important. And I think Enoch, with its angelology and all that other stuff, I mean, I think that should be 
should have some weight into how we understand maybe a book like Jude or Second Peter that are very much in that same sort of um, spiritual milieu. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, let me say a quick prayer. And if you guys want to hang out and still talk about this, I'm happy to stay here, but I want to get you out of here.